following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Uh, Good day, Grace Orange, Grace Church. Please find Romans chapter 9 in your Bibles. Romans 9. Yes, I'm a grandpa. Thank you. All right, Romans 9. In Romans chapter 9, 22 to 29, Paul is going wide angle to show us something. And he's, what he's showing us is the why of the sovereign freedom of God. The why. And what we see is the scope of God's desire. Why God does what he desires for his glory. Now we're asking why all the time in life, aren't we? Uh, why is this happening to me? Why did you do this to me? Why can't that person be more kind? Things like that. Our kids ask us why all the time. Why can't I go? Why can't I have that? Why can't you take me there? And when it comes to God in the Bible, it's actually really good to ask why as long as you are seeking to know him and not set him straight. So it's really good to ask why, and we're going to find out the reason why today, why God does what he does in choosing some and not choosing others. This will be good for our souls, it will be good for our fellowship, it will give us a growing view of God's saving works, it will give us a deepening appreciation of his purposes, and it's going to build our confidence in who God is and what he does, and the fact that he does what he wants for his glory and our good. So if you're able, I want you to stand with me as I read Romans 9. Verses 22 to 29. Read these verses. The inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. A privilege to read it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy your ways of mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for the riches of your glory. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege to gather today to hear your word. May you have your way in our hearts. All for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time in Romans chapter 9, we were looking at verses 19 to 21. And we saw the relationship between God and fallen humanity is one of a potter with clay. A potter with clay. And how clay cannot comprehend what the potter purposes and what the potter produces. 
Clay must yield to the potter's desires. So we learned we should not accuse God, that honest questions, humble questions are good, proud accusations are not, and that God determines our destiny and holds us accountable for our choices, and that God is in control, that his authority is all-encompassing, it is overarching, it's the umbrella under which everything else falls. And today what we're going to see is the why regarding God's freedom and sovereignty. Why God does what he desires for his glory. The scope of God's desire to glorify himself. Take you back to verse 17. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. We have seen in, in Romans so far, and we especially in chapter 8 and now into chapter 9, election and predestination and mercy. And they all have their foundation and their fulfillment in the glory of God. In Romans chapter 9, we looked at this last week, in verses 19 to 21, you've got this illustration of this potter, and Isaiah says, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. We learned that it's sinful to accuse God of wrongdoing for choosing certain people to save. No one is treated unfairly that some get justice, others graciously get gospel mercy. And you know that Romans has been drenched in the gospel. If you want to know the gospel, keep reading Romans. In chapters 1 through 8, describing God's saving acts in justification and sanctification. And then I keep referring to what's coming at the end of the book, in chapters 12 through 16, the transforming work of God in a believer's life, what it looks like when, where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. But between that, it's not filler, it's very necessary to the argument that is being made, Romans 9 through 11, I'm describing God's purpose in saving some and not saving others. So it's giving us a picture of God's overall agenda for humankind. God fulfilling God's desires, justifying his ways and works, uh, the potter's free choice, God's righteous freedom, his sovereign predestinating purposes. And so in chapter 9, predominantly in this context of has the word of God failed because Israel isn't believing? You've got the idea of God's sovereign election, why there are some saved and some unsaved. We go on into chapter 10 and you see man's responsibility, why we're held accountable for our sin. In fact, the end of this chapter 9 starts talking about that. We'll see that next week. And then you get into chapter 11, God's overall goal, God's overall appoint, uh, uh, purposes and what he's appointed to have happen and why. But we need to see the scope of God's desire. It, it's, it's going to matter how you navigate life tomorrow. As you go through life and you think about your life as a believer, if you're a believer, and you think about how that applies to being in the marketplace and in school and in the community, you do need to know why God is doing what he's doing, because if you don't, you're going to come to faulty conclusions. A lot of people have a God of their own imagination that isn't the God of the Bible. This is going to help us see what the God of the Bible is up to. And you might be surprised that some of the things you've been holding on to, like, well, the God I believe in wouldn't do that, you'll find you haven't been believing in the God of the Bible. We need to know the scope of God's desire. And so verses 22 to 29 show us three overarching desires of God 
based on his desire to glorify himself. Three overarching desires of God based on his desire to glorify himself that accomplish his purposes. Now you think about our desires. Our desires are imperfect. Our desires are often impure. And don't we do what we desire? We all do what we desire. We are not victims of our schedule or our spouse or our kids or our coworkers or our friends or our enemies. We are not victims. We do what we want. Now we make some good choices, some bad choices, but we take the consequences, don't we? But God makes no bad choices. You gotta get that set, you gotta get that straight. God does what he desires for his glory, and all his choices are good. So the determinative desire, the most important want, the most successful agenda is God's. All of his desires are rooted in his perfect attributes, his goodness, his grace, his mercy. His desires are good and right and pure. And so the first thing you're going to see in verse 22, we're going to start at verse 22, what you're going to see is that there's a desire that God has that you and I often want to set aside, put in the back room, leave secret, not tell anyone about, because, oh, we're kind of ashamed of this one. Or we're kind of nervous about this one. We're, we don't know for sure if this really fits in God's plan. It's his wrath. The first thing we see here is God desires to show his wrath. You know, I told someone this week, I said, they asked me, what are you preaching? And I said, well, the scope of God's desires and how God desires to show his wrath, among other things. And they're like, oh, hellfire and brimstone. I'm like, no, mercy and grace. God desires to show his wrath. Look with me at verse 22. It begins, what if God, and this is not like, oh, you know, what if you do something and maybe you do it or you don't. This is about, uh, this is something that God has purposed and, and, and said, this is what he's going to do, okay? So what if God desiring, purposing, and by the way, the Greek term for desiring or willing is much stronger than in English. Again, we would say, well, I desire something and it might not get it or not. But what if God desiring, he, he's willed it, this is a determined intent, this is a want, this is a purpose. It describes God's plans and then accomplishing the plan. You and I, we come up with plans and we got a to-do list for a certain day and we're like, we didn't get it all done. Or, you know, I was going to do this in my life, but it didn't happen for me. I, I was hoping to do this or that, but my plans were foiled or my plans failed or whatever. This is God's plan that he plans and then accomplishes, and he's 100% successful in the plan. So God desiring. So everything about this, it's about God desiring something and, and wanting to make something known. He desires to show his wrath, to show it. Literally, to make it known, to reveal it. He wants to reveal his wrath. That's the strongest of words. This is not like, well, he's a little bit angry. He's a little bit peeved or perturbed. No, this is a, 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 the strongest of words. He is, he's angry. It is his wrath. It is, and and, and, a, and a, what's going to happen because of the wrath is a, a, a penalty that's proportionate with the passion that he has in his wrath. And many times God speaks of his wrath. He speaks of it in the first person. My wrath. This is, this is anger. By the way, the, the Bible speaks more about wrath than love. Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. What is wrath? 
Wrath is the personal manifestation of God's holy moral character in judgment against sin. That's what his wrath is. His, his personal manifestation of his holy moral character in judgment against sin. So this is a serious thing. And it, and it doesn't go back in the back, back far corners of the warehouse where only you know, the, the, the special uh, you know, members can go see that at some point. I want to remind you that Psalm 103 verse 8 says that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God never loses his temper like we do. You lose your temper, I lose our te- my temper, and, and you know we are sinfully angry a lot of the time. Some people just have the underlying latent anger you know, mode all the time. But this is God's holy indignation. This is his anger directed at sin. This is holy, this is good, this is right. Wrath is good. Wrath is an expression of holy love. I know you're getting your mind blown here. This is God's holy response to sin. He will not overlook sin. He will not ignore sin. We want to overlook it. We want to ignore it. We want to brush it under, uh, sweep it under the rug. God's not going to pretend that sin is not there. And we should be very happy that he doesn't do that. Wrath is when a holy God sees sin. Wrath is when a holy God, a just God, sees rebellion. Wrath is when a righteous God sees unrighteousness. When, a, when the perfect God sees evil, he speaks of his wrath in the first person, my wrath. God's the angriest person in the Bible. If we had a little contest, we'd say, who's the angriest person in the Grace Church, you know? Let's, let's rank them, you know? God's the angriest person of, of, in the Bible. His anger is righteous. His anger is good. Ours isn't. Oftentimes, God's wrath is holy. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a God who feels indignation every day. Ezekiel 25, 17, I will execute my vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. They will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Nahum 1, verses 2 through 6, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Next line, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is not a little thing. Romans, 8, Romans 1.18 told us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2.5 says because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Revelation 19 is a picture of, of heaven being opened up And a white horse, and one sitting on the white horse, is called faithful and true. You know who it is. In righteousness he judges and makes war. Clothed in a robe dipped in blood, he is called the word of God. 
And from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And then he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is not small. This is not insignificant. God desires to display his wrath. He is glorified in displaying his wrath. Think of his attributes. This is one of them. His attributes make up his divine nature and character, perfectly and permanently consistent, worthy of our worship. God's anger, God's vengeance, God's retribution poured out on sinners displays his holiness. And I would go as far as to say that if God is not wrathful, his love is hateful. And his mercy is awful. And the cross of Christ would be contemptible if God were not wrathful. And it says here that God wants to show his wrath on vessels of wrath. So you got the potter motif again. These are those God didn't choose to save. Those he is allowing to receive the fair consequence and the eternal penalty of their sin. His just wrath. They've been prepared for destruction. The Bible does not teach that God forces people to sin. He lets them go the way they're already going. Remember, this is God dealing with fallen humanity. Everyone is starting depraved and sinful. God fashions them for a particular purpose, verse 21 says. Fitted them for destruction, verse 22. What's going to happen is they're not going to repent. Now, you don't know who they are. If you're a believer, you beg people to, to come to Christ. You, you plead with people to come to Christ. You preach the gospel, and you leave the results in God's hands because those whom he will save, he will save. But vessels of destruction will not repent. Again, you don't know who they are. Don't try to figure it out. You just look at every person with love and kindness and compassion and, and mercy, and you appeal to them to turn from their sins and turn to Christ. This potter analogy is telling us something that should actually comfort us. This is not up to our ingenuity and our creativity to get people to believe. God has the authority to shape one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. And he has prepared them, literally fitted them out like a fishing net that needs to be set in order. It can be used for its proper purpose. God has confirmed already uh, rebellious people in their rebellion, setting them in order to display his wrath. Prepared, literally to make adequate, to furnish completely, to be fully qualified. Now, you can think of the potter motif, and you can think, well, you know, a potter doesn't make a vessel just to shatter it. Like, hey, I'm going to make this and fire it even and take it all the way through and just go throw it on the ground. You know, wow, I did that. That's, That's not what we're talking about here. Potter does not make a vessel just to destroy it. We think of shattering when we think of this. But potters do make vessels for dishonorable use. It can be a a vase on a shelf that you polish, or it can be a chamber pot. Look that one up. I don't have time to explain that. Looking back, verse 21, honorable use and dishonorable use. So honorable corresponds with mercy. Mercy. 
dishonorable with wrath, honorable with glory, dishonorable with destruction. So dishonor in verse 21 correlates to destruction, and the, the destruction of verse 22 is eternal destruction, eternal damnation. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That is in the passive tense, but God is still preparing them. Verse 23, uh, the, the vessels of, of, of glory, uh, they have, it's an active redemption there. Verse 22, we're talking about God's wrath, which is one of his attributes. And what you learn here is that God's attributes are functional. Okay, you don't you know, put them in a, in a library somewhere and go, wow, God is holy, God is good, God's kind of, we'll take them off the shelf when we need them. No, these are functional attributes of God. God is, is explaining what he's like. And so he is a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. And that wrath has existed before time. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, sin now comes into the picture. We're going to have to get something to, to counteract sin. How about some wrath? No, he's always been wrathful. He's always been a God of wrath. Sin exists. When you're mind blown, sin exists to put the wrath of God on display. It has existed before time in the eternal character of God. God isn't adding things to his nature. So many people will say, that's not the God I believe in. Well, you're not believing in the God of the Bible. This is the wrath of God reserved for Christ's rejectors. This is the wrath saved up that does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is the wrath stored in God's storehouse. This is the wrath Christ received. This is the wrath that Jesus took in our place. This is the wrath that introduces us to a justifiably, eternally angry God. Don't think sinful anger like your anger or my anger. Think holy anger. God's anger is perfectly good. Sinners are in the hands of an angry God. So many people know that Jonathan Edwards sermon, just the title, they've never read it. It's one of the most loving, loving appeals to come to Christ that's ever been written or preached. Look it up. I don't have time to read the whole thing to you. It's, it's his perfect nature. It's perfectly pure anger, untainted by sin. So we can't comprehend this, can we? This, God's wrath is his perfectly pure anger untainted by sin. We can just get a shadow of that and kind of grasp it a little bit. The wrath reflects God's holiness. He displays his wrath for his glory. And I just want to, before we go to the next point, let me just say this. Have you ever thought to praise God for his wrath? I mean, most of us are dealing with anger all the time, and so we're like, Wrath must be bad if it's attached to God. Bad when it's attached to me. Jesus, Jesus died for your anger. Jesus died for your issues. Jesus died for your wrath. But have you ever thought to glorify God for his just wrath, for his perfectly pure anger untainted by sin? You need to glorify him for his wrath. Thank him now. Thank him now for his wrath. He desires to show it, and we'll move on to the second desire, still in verse 22. God desires to make known his power, his power. What if God, 
Here's the reason why. Desiring to show his wrath and make his power known. Power. The Greek word is dynatron. It, it, it's related to dunamis, which is the, the, the Greek word for power, which is like dynamite. Strength, ability. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, Jehoshaphat says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might. None is able to withstand you. Job 26, verse 11, by his power, the sea grew calm. By his skill, he crushed the great sea monster. His spirit made the heavens beautiful, and his power pierced the gliding serpent. These are just the beginning of all that he does, merely a whisper of his power. Who then can comprehend the thunder of his power? Psalm 147, verse 5, great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Jeremiah 10, 13, God made the earth by his power and preserves it by his wisdom. This is the power that created the world. This is the power that saves souls. This is the power that is holding everything together right this very moment. This is the power of God to create something out of nothing. This is the power that is mighty toward believers. This is the power that is particularly, personally pinpointed to the exact spot in, to which it's focused. Power to show mercy or power to harden. I hope you can see now why God gave us Romans chapter 9. I hope you've been seeing this. That our faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. That we would not put our confidence in ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Savor the power of God to save. Savor God's grace in your soul. It's perfecting, sanctifying, glorifying power. I know it's easy to think um, of God's power displayed when someone is saved. That's, that's the normal thing we're going to think of. We're in creation or redemption, right? Power to create the world and power to save. But there are some counterintuitive aspects of wrath and power that are surprising twists in how we usually think of them, and especially with power. So we do think of power with God saving. Absolutely, yes, true. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We are, as Polycarp said, immortal through the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice, I want you to notice, look at verse 22, and I want you to notice What's the closest thing in the text to his power? Look at verse 22. God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power. What's the closest thing in the text to it? Uh, desiring to show his wrath and enduring with, us, with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What this is being applied to is the wrath and the vessels of destruction first. You notice this, the closest thing in the text, vessels of destruction. This is speaking of God's power towards vessels of destruction and showing them wrath, actually reserving wrath for them. We know that our power is not going to sustain us. I mean, think about all the, the attempts we have at, at being powerful and how they all fall flat. We're like flimsy toothpicks. We're, we're like wheat waving in the wind. But God, he's more powerful than the strongest army. He's able to guard us. This is creation power. This is Red Sea power. This is Jericho wall crushing power. This is axe head floating power. This is sun going backwards power. This is donkey talking power. 
This is walking on water power. This is raising the dead power. This is opening blind eyes power. This is Lazarus raising power. This is raising Jesus from the dead power. This is life-changing power that changed your life when you came to know Christ. Notice as you go on in verse 22. What did he do? It says he has endured. So this is telling us what God is doing right now. He has endured patiently. Now we're talking about patience. We're the most impatient people in the world. He patiently endured. He patiently for, he's forbearing. He's endured with much patience. So God could justly crush all people because of their sin. But he crushed Christ instead. And right now what he is up to, he is patiently enduring. He is forbearing. And that is a display of his power. He is, his power is, is holding back the wrath. It's like a big dam holding back the wrath. Withholding the wrath for a time by his power so that more people can be saved. There's glorious strength under control. Keeping wrath at bay. And he's doing it with much patience so that others might be saved. Much long-suffering. The, the Greek word is makruthumeia. It's patient forbearance. It's not what we do when we say we're being patient. Maybe, maybe a close, close second would be you waiting for 30 years for something patiently and not complaining once. He's enduring He's putting up with, he's bearing with, and he's doing it to reveal his wrath at his perfect time. He endures with much patience vessels of wrath marked for destruction. Now this is uh, paralleling uh, what we've seen about Pharaoh in this chapter. His rise to power and, and hardening for God's purposes. But God was letting it go and letting it go and letting it go until the Red Sea. God's patience to vessels of wrath facilitates the display of his wrath and his power. I mean, remember what we've seen so far. It, just in Romans chapter 9, the saved aren't so good. The saved aren't so good. Moses was not better than Pharaoh. Isaac was not better than Ishmael. Jacob was not better than Esau. We've got murderers, mama's boys, and master manipulators. And there is no injustice on God's part. He does as he pleases. He recompenses the wicked as he chooses. And he grants mercy to whom he desires to grant mercy. This is why you're so blown away that you got saved. You're like, I know about myself. People are like criticizing me. And I'm thinking to myself, but if they knew me as I really know myself, they would criticize me more. And God chose me to be saved that's mercy, folks. That's what you're now starting to understand. It's mercy. You didn't deserve one iota. You didn't deserve one drop. So Jonathan Edwards preaches this sermon at Enfield, Connecticut on July 8th, 1741. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You should read it. Your heart will melt. It's the most loving, merciful word in 1741 for people to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Kind of the main point was that there is nothing 
that keeps wicked people at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. He came up with ten considerations, ten points in the sermon, basically, and among them were these. God can cast the wicked in hell at any given moment, and the wicked deserve to be cast into hell, and the wicked at this moment suffer under God's condemnation to hell, and the wicked must not think simply because they are not physically in hell, that God, in whose hand they now reside, is not this very moment as angry with them as he is with those he is now tormenting in hell, and who this very moment feel the fierceness of his wrath. And also that all that wicked men may do to save themselves from hell's pains shall afford them nothing if they continue to reject Christ. You see... God's patient forbearance is an awesome display of his power. This is, this is not God shifting into neutral and coasting for a while. This is God reversing the thrusters on his wrath and throttling it down in order to save some and putting his wrath on display at the same time for a future fuller display, a reserved wrath. This is like bull riding, okay? This is like the bull in the chute, ready for the rider to mount up and the gate to swing open. And when the gate swings open, all hellbound fury erupts, right? Breaks loose. This is God's power to hold back wrath so that more people will be saved. This is like water being held back in a dam. Even right over here in Orange, the Villa Park Dam, uh, they let, it got pretty filled in a lot of the rain recently, and so they're starting to let the water out little by little. When they let the water out, you don't get to go on the trails because it's dangerous. God lets his wrath out just a little bit. It's a foretaste of the flood of wrath to come. It's being stored up for the deluge. Uh, this is not God saying, don't make me come over there, okay? This is God saying, wait till I, your father, come home. This is like Johnny Cash said, when, when the man comes around, <laughs> fury will unleash. God is waiting to judge the nations. Their sin at that point, much like Pharaoh going with the, all the plagues, their sin at that point will be at its zenith. It'll, it'll be deserving the maximum force wrath. And, and, and what happens when God displays maximum for, force wrath? Maximum glory to God. And here's what we get to do. We get to do evangelism. We get to preach the gospel to lost folks in a valley that's going to be burned. It's true. Anyone in hell deserves to be there. Anyone in heaven doesn't deserve to be there. Hell is justice. Heaven is grace. I think we can all praise God for his patience with us about this time. May he make us like him, patient with others. On a weekly basis, I, I pray for you. Uh, got a little app that we use, and you can even see your picture if, they, if we have your picture. I can even text you while I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you right now. But you know what that does for me as I pray through uh, the grace prayer list? Uh, seeing faces and names that many of whom I know really, really well, I see, I, I'm encouraged, actually. I, I'm encouraged as I pray for you because I'm thinking, wow, look at all these encouraging things in this person's life. But I also know of there's areas to grow. And it makes me compassionate towards you as you are with me, as we, you, we are with one another. 
Praise God for his, his forbearance. What forbearance does is it doesn't remind you every time it sees you that you did something wrong. It's just holding back the wrath. Now, what do we do? Well, we're going to, like, set somebody up for that one, right? And just say, okay, I'm going I'm to go and go, and then I'm going to, boom, going to come down upon you. That's, that's sinful. We, we need to let go of our, of our uh, of revenge. And just praise God for his patience toward us. And may he make us like him, patient with others as we all grow slowly. We're all growing slowly. I want you to move on to the next part, and it really is the last point here. And it's, again, God's telling us why he did it. Okay, so, so the first thing he's telling us is, I desire to show my wrath. And I, and I desire to make known my power. That the power is mercifully restraining wrath. Uh, K. Mueller put it this way, God's wrath is put into the service of his mercy. But most importantly is this third part. God desires to make known the riches of his glory toward believers to reveal the good he has in store for those who despite their sin receive his mercy you see this in verses 23 and 24 the third area here this is the biggest area it alone is introduced with a, with a henna clause in order that in order to it's a purpose clause in order to make his glory known that's the big part okay the display of god's power and god's wrath are sub purpose to the revelation of the wealth of his glory towards vessels of mercy. So, so Paul's primary emphasis is on this third point. He wants to make known the riches, the wealth, the abundance of his glory, his splendor, his brightness, his praise, his honor. Ephesians 2.7, God's purpose and redemption to show in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans 11.33, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth. That means it's very deep. It's indescribably deep. So deep, the apostle peeks into the ravine of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge and says, oh, wow. This is you standing at the precipice of the Grand Canyon peering in. Ephesians 3, 8 and 9. To me, Paul says, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable means boundless. In, in Greek, unsearchable means it cannot be counted. Solomon's riches were in abundance. Gold and silver counted. They were countable. There was an end to them. They were temporary treasures. But, but Jesus is the, is, is the greater than Solomon, Luke eleven thirty one. 31. The treasures of Christ are forever, limitless, uncountable, unexplorable, unlimited. You can never plumb the depths. Eternal blessings the unsearchable riches of Christ, the glory of God, the truth of God, the wisdom of God, the life of God, the love of God. Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms. God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.7, redemption through his blood. You go on through those verses. Forgiveness of sins, 
the knowledge of the mystery of his will, the message of the truth, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. In Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 2 Peter 1.3, in Christ God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Romans 5.9, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We get the riches, not the wrath. Colossians 2, we're to reach all the, full, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The full multiplicities of, of the glory of God, great abundance of storehouses overflowing. It's like the treasure trove in National Treasure. It's like the treasure warehouse in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It just seemed to go on forever. Well, these do go on forever. This is glory, awesome glory to God, revealed in God's mercy and his kindness and his grace and his forgiveness that he grants us in Christ. We who are vessels of mercy, those who he chooses to save, he has prepared us beforehand, his sovereign choosing, his election, on vessels of mercy prepared beforehand, actively prepared beforehand for glory. God wanted to do it, and he wanted to do it towards you specifically. This wasn't like a blanket you know, blessing where, hey, everybody in that you know, geographical area gets this. You put your name there. Look at verse 24. Paul says, even us. To us. To us whom he has called from out of the Jews, from out of the Gentiles. This includes Paul, and this includes everyone who believes the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you're in the us. And just like with Isaac and Jacob, God breaks pattern. He makes this new body of believers from Jew and Gentile, the elect. He gives examples, 25 to 29. These are just examples where he's illustrating what he's saying about God calling his people into existence, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He gives a series of quotes. He he starts with Hosea. Regarding the Gentiles, he announces the multi-ethnic nature of the people of God. Aren't we glad? Gentiles are among those who are called, verse 24, and are objects of mercy, verse 23. Verse 25 says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very, verse 26, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Hosea was foretelling the return of the northern, northern tribes of Israel, and he was speaking of the ultimate restoration of Israel to God, yet they were in present alienation to God, and so he's saying, I'm going to bring Gentiles in. We should be glad. Isaiah, verses 27 and 28, Isaiah is announcing that God will judge Israel with the invasion of the Assyrians, and through the remnant, be faithful to his promises. It's bittersweet. God is drawing some from the Jews, but their numbers are small. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Doom on Israel because of their sin, blessing for those God would have mercy on, some from Israel, some from the Gentiles. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay prophesying about the southern kingdom of Judah being conquered and then scattered, temporarily rejected due to unbelief. It's a preview of Israel's rejection of the Messiah and destruction. And then Isaiah goes on, verse 29, if the Lord had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God's judgment on sin would have rightly fallen on us. A remnant of Israel will will survive God's wrath because of his mercy 
He says, if the Lord of hosts hadn't done it, you need to know what Lord of hosts means. Lord of hosts, Lord of Sabaoth, really. Uh, this is an Old Testament title for God that refers to his all-encompassing sovereignty. If you don't think Romans 9 is about sovereignty, you don't know what Lord of hosts means. <laughs> his all-encompassing sovereignty. We need to know God accurately here. He's revealing himself accurately. He's a God of wrath, he's a God of power, and he's a God of glory who wants to pour out the riches of his mercy on us. We, in Christ, have the riches of Christ. He, he has authority. God has the authority to give mercy to whoever he wills. His choice is often humanly surprising. I just look in the mirror every day. If not for Christ, we'd be eternally lost. God made a way in Christ for vessels of mercy, those for honorable use, those foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, to have his riches in Christ. Unsearchable, unfathomable, immeasurable, God-centered gospel blessings. That everything that believers get to experience because they've been chosen by a gracious God. This is why you can deal with the death of your spouse or the death of your child or cancer or losing your job or, or, or every disappointment. This is why. Because of every, every blessing that he pours out on undeserving sinners, riches we receive without merit, Riches banked and never ending. Riches that never dry up. Riches given to the beloved child. Riches for those who've been substituted for, who were died for, who've been regenerated and are being transformed and have been reconciled to God. These are riches at God's right hand. Pleasures forevermore. These are riches stored up. These are Psalm 103 riches. The riches a grateful child receives and they get an inheritance they did not earn from a parent they deeply loved. Praise God for his glory. Thank him for his mercy. We spend so much of our time on wrath in our personal lives. We spend so much of our time trying to get power in our personal lives. Well, you know we are not called to be wrathful or powerful. And we spend so much of our time on those two things. Trying to get back at someone, trying to get ahead of someone. We're not called to be wrathful. We're not called to be powerful. But we are called to be merciful. Our Heavenly Father is merciful. We're called to mercy. Let God's mercy melt your heart and mind that you would become merciful. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for, for they will receive mercy. Matthew 5, 7. Will, will you open yourself to becoming more merciful like Christ? Or will you continue to go for the jugular and wreak relational havoc? You make the choice. These verses today, they've shown us the scope of God's desire. Three overarching desires of God based on his desire to glorify himself that, that accomplish his purposes. The scope of his purposes. He, he desires to display his wrath. He desires to display his power. He desires to display the riches of his glory to make them known. This is, this is the sweep of the sovereignty of God. This is the, the orbit of the omniscience of God. This is, this is the gamut of his grace. This is the range of his redemption. This is him displaying total freedom to operate apart from any outside influence or actor. This is why God does what he does for his glory. Lord, thank you that you do everything you do for your glory. The precise reason that you are forbearing with lost sinners now is that you would leverage the, 
the riches of your grace on those you have chosen to save. You are someone than whom none greater can be conceived. You are the supreme being, the greatest perfection. There's no limitation in you. You are infinite, you are independent, you are immutable. You're all wise, all, all holy, all loving. And we praise you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would, would, would give us grace to spend time this week to enjoy you and to sit and enjoy you and to worship you for who you are and what you do. That we would enjoy you with our family and our friends and fellow Christians and, and that it would spill out into our interactions with unbelievers, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.